Gracious Lord, our Lord, our King, the Almighty One, we thank you for your word, which is given to us for our learning. We pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts may be acceptable to you. In Jesus' name, amen. When I see new students coming to church here, it often takes me back to my first year at Teacher Training College in London. One of my friends there was Caroline, John Stott's niece. She wasn't a Christian when she came to college, but on her very first Sunday there, she went to a guest service at Uncle Johnny's church, All Souls, Langham Place, and was converted. She soon became a strong member of the Christian Union and every week would invite her friends to go along with her to hear Uncle Johnny speak. And sometimes to have lunch in the rectory afterwards. I remember going a couple of occasions uh, to the rectory and having very lively theological arguments and discussions over the dinner table with a wide range of people. And I guess that you too, um, many of you, have benefited from John Stott's preaching and teaching over the years. And it's only a few years ago that he actually preached here in the pulpit at Holy Trinity. Until his death two years ago, he was the most foremost evangelical Christian leader in the Anglican Church. He put evangelicals on the map in the 1970s, and has left us a legacy of sound Bible exposition in his many books and Bible commentaries. In his commentary on Galatians, he says that many people uh, regard our reading today from Galatians 4, verses 21 onwards, to be the most difficult passage in the whole letter. So as it's fallen to my lot to preach on this passage... I'm going to quite unashamedly use John Stott's headings as our outline and include quite a lot of his other material in this sermon. However, I will also um, put things up on the screen as we go through, which I hope will help clarify what Paul is saying in his allegory about Hagar and Sarah, Ishmael and Isaac. If any of you have read Kyan Potok's novel, The Chosen, about two young lads growing up in an Orthodox Jewish community, you'll be aware that in the rabbinical schools, the students have to learn and debate points of the law from the Torah, the first uh, five books of Moses, and the Talmud. And in our passage today, which... um, you will find on page 1171, Paul addresses his message to the Gentile Christians who'd been persuaded by some Jewish Christians that a number of the ceremonial practices in the Old Testament were still as binding in the New Testament church. 
I asked Barbara to read this passage in the New English Bible because it was easier to uh, see it as a whole. There are many in the world today who imagine that the way to God is by observing a set of rules or ceremonies. Not just Jews, but Muslims, Jehovah's Witnesses, and even some practicing Christians who seem to tie themselves into knots by trying to get it right. They find themselves restricted, bound by law, to either keep man-made or even self-imposed traditions. And these Galatians had become legalistic, and Paul is deeply perplexed by their behavior, which we see in verse 20. So he meets them on their own ground and explains just how illogical their position is. You who want to be under the law, verse 21, then listen to what the law says. It will judge and it will condemn you. There are three stages in Paul's argument. The first is historical, the historical background. The second is allegorical, the allegorical argument, and the third is personal, the personal application. So first of all, let's look at the historical background in verses 21 to 23. Paul reminds us that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman, Ishmael, and the other, Isaac, by a free woman. The Jews were very proud of their descent from Abraham. They saw Abraham as the father of the Jewish race. God had made a covenant with him, promising him the land of Canaan, and more descendants than the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. As a result, the Jews believed themselves to be eternally safe. You may remember that John the Baptist challenged his contemporaries on this in Matthew chapter 3 and verse 9. And Jesus taught that Abraham's true children were spiritual, not physical. They were the ones who believed God and obeyed him. John chapter 8, verses 33 to 34. And in chapter 3 of this letter to the Galatians, Paul has already said, you cannot be a true son of Abraham unless you belong to Christ. So to return to Paul's illustration, he says Abraham had two sons, Ishmael and Isaac. But there were two important differences between them. They were born by different mothers. One was born to Hagar, a slave woman, while the other was born to Abraham's wife, Sarah, a free woman. And each boy took after his mother. So Ishmael was born into slavery, while Isaac was born into freedom. The second major difference between them is that there were different circumstances around their birth. Well, physically, they were both conceived and born in a normal way. Paul says 
the slave woman's son was born in the ordinary way, or the New English Bible says, in the course of nature. But his son by the free woman was born as a result of promise. In other words, Ishmael's birth was natural, while Isaac's birth was not natural, it was supernatural, fulfilling the promise of God. Abraham was a hundred years old when Isaac was born, and Sarah, who'd been unable to have children during her childbearing years, was over 90 when Isaac was born, fulfilling the promise of God. In this way, he was born supernaturally. And Paul sees an allegory here. He says, everyone is a slave by nature until by God's grace he is set free. So everyone is either an Ishmael or an Isaac. And we come then to the allegorical argument in verses 24 to 27. We have to understand that although the circumstances of the birth of Ishmael and the birth of Isaac are historical events, they also stand for spiritual truth. For the women, verse 24, their mothers represent two covenants. In the Bible, there are two covenants. The covenant, you'll remember, is a solemn agreement between God and man. The Old Testament speaks of the Old Covenant, the Mosaic Covenant, based on the law God gave Moses on Mount Sinai. The New Testament tells us of the Christian covenant, which is based on promise. But we cannot ignore the Old Testament, because the New Testament covenant is a fulfillment of the promise made through Abraham and further promised through Jeremiah. And something I find very helpful is to realize that there are yet two more differences. In the Old Covenant, God said, you shall and you shall not. You'll know the summary in Exodus 20 of the law. God said, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not commit adultery, for example. And in the Old Covenant, God lays the responsibility of keeping the law on man. In the Old Covenant, God lays, God lays the responsibility of keeping the law on man. Whereas in the New Covenant, the covenant of promise, God keeps the responsibility to himself. And he says, I will, I will. God is a God who keeps his promises. For example, he says, if you confess your sins, I will forgive your sins. He says, I will never leave you or forsake you in Hebrews 13, verse 5. He says, I will send my spirit to be with you. John 16, verse 7. Do you begin to see where Paul is going in his argument? Which would you rather be, under law or under promise? 
Another hurdle we have to tackle in this passage are the two Jerusalems. Jerusalem is a shorthand for the people of God. Just as today, a news reporter, a journalist, may refer to Brussels in his report, referring to European Union, or to Baghdad, to refer to the Iranians. Jerusalem stands for the people of God. But there have been two people of God, the Jews, God's people under the Old Covenant, and Christian believers, God's people under the New Covenant. Hagar, who bears children into slavery, is the Old Covenant, the law which comes from Mount Sinai. And she corresponds to the earthly Jerusalem, Judaism, the children of law who are in bondage. Sarah, on the other hand, Isaac's mother, a free woman, stands for the heavenly Jerusalem or the Christian church. And Paul says, she is our mother. If we are Christians bound to the living God by a new covenant, we are citizens of the heavenly Jerusalem, not living in bondage, but living in freedom. The quotation that follows in verse 27 comes from Isaiah 54 and verse 1, does not refer to Hagar or Sarah, but to Jerusalem when it was first spoken. It was written to the Jewish exiles in Babylon, and through it God promises that after their restoration, his people would be more numerous than they were before the exile. And John Stott suggests that the real fulfillment of this down the centuries is not so much the restoration of the Jews to Israel, but as to the growth of the Christian church. Christians today are far, far more numerous than the Jews have ever been. So let's look at this summary of the allegory. The important thing to know is not only who our father is, but who our mother is. For she either represents law and bondage or promise and freedom. So although Abraham, in this allegory, um, is the father, we have Ishmael and Isaac, his two sons, born by Hagar, a slave woman, or Sarah, a free woman, and the sons follow uh, the mother's uh, inheritance, and so Ishmael is born into slavery, whereas Isaac's born into freedom. Ish, um, Ishmael's was a natural birth, while Isaac's was supernatural. And Hagar represents the old law, whereas Sarah represents the new promise of the covenant. And also, they represent, uh, Hagar represents the earthly Jerusalem, whereas um, Sarah represents the heavenly Jerusalem. And so we come 
to Paul's personal application to the Gentile Christians in Galatia from verse 28 onwards. He makes two main points. First, in verse 28, he says, We are the children of promise. We are Abraham's children. Not by nature, but like Isaac, by supernature. We are Abraham's children by supernature. We are children of God's promise. But here's a warning. Just as Isaac was ridiculed by his half-brother Ishmael, at, it happened at his weaning ceremony, which we read of in Genesis 21 and verse 9. It probably was when Isaac was about three and Ishmael was 17. So says Paul, we as um, Abraham's children will, um, should expect persecution, not from this world, but, but from our half-brothers from religious people and from the nominal church. The traditional church has always attempted to tie us down to observe traditions and ceremonies. But we are the living church, free to move on with God as we are guided by his Holy Spirit. So who inherits the promises of God? those under law or those under promise. It's quite clear that those under law are excluded, just as Ishmael was, despite Abraham's pleading on his behalf. It's those under promise who inherit the promises of God. So Paul has said, we are children of promise, but we are to expect persecution. And secondly, he says, we will receive the inheritance, verse 30. It was important that the Gentile believers realized that the true heirs of the promises of God are not those who trace their physical descent from Abraham, but those who trace their spiritual descent from him. That is, believers, whether they're Jews or Gentiles. So what's the fundamental difference between the religion of Ishmael and the religion of Isaac? The religion of Ishmael is the religion of nature. What man can do for himself without the special intervention of God? The religion of Ishmael is the religion of nature. What man can do for himself without the special intervention of God? The religion of Isaac, on the other hand, is one of God's grace, showing not what man can do, but what God can do. The religion of Isaac is all about divine intervention and divine initiative. God sent his only son, Jesus, to fulfill the promise to be our savior, so that all who believe in him will inherit eternal life. And so it is for us. Christianity isn't a natural religion, but a supernatural one. The Ishmaels of this world trust in themselves and in their own righteousness. 
some of us here may have been in that place where we think, oh, I, li I live a good life. I don't harm anybody. I'm okay. They are the Ishmaels of this world who trust in themselves. In contrast, the Isaacs of this world trust only in God through Jesus Christ. The Ishmaels of this world live in slavery to themselves because that's what self-reliance always leads to. It leads to bondage. Whereas the Isaacs of this world have faith in Christ and enjoy freedom because it's through faith in Christ alone that we are set free. So, are you in practice an Ishmael or an Isaac? The Gentile Christians in Galatia had been enticed back to observe various Jewish ceremonies, such as circumcision, in order to feel that they were fully Christians. The Judaizers had persuaded them that the grace of God wasn't enough. And they were wrong. They were living under law. So I wonder how we are tempted to turn back. Do we expect God to bless us only if we do some special act of service for him? Do we still hang on to some of those traditions, those superstitions that we've grown up with, like touching wood? What a stupid thing that is. It really is. And it is not godly. We don't trust in a bit of wood. We trust in God. Or are we tempted the other way and let our freedom in Christ become license, saying, oh, I'm free now to do what I like. God will forgive me. What's a little fling on the side? Why should I complete my tax form absolutely correctly? Everybody else just takes a bit off. Are we an Ishmael or an Isaac? We are those who follow, um, we are born uh, as children of Abraham, like Isaac, children of promise. All we need to, to have is faith in Christ. Stand firm then says Paul in chapter 5 and verse 1. Don't let others tell you you have to do this or that to be fully Christian, but look to Jesus Christ. Be like him. Make his love incarnate in the world. It's by faith you've been saved, not by anything you can do. There's no need for add-ons. Let your love for him rule your life and determine your actions. Let his Holy Spirit be your guide from day to day. Lord, what is it that you want me to do today? How do I act in this situation? How do I honor you? 
When Christ sets us free from our sin, we are free indeed, not to do our own thing, but to love God in a new way, with the whole of our hearts and our minds and our souls. So at the beginning of this, another year, let's commit ourselves to him, to God, to stand firm in him, responding to him by living lives that are honoring to him under the guidance of his Holy Spirit, then we can look forward to being fully part of that heavenly Jerusalem and to the fulfillment of God's promises through Jesus Christ. Let's pause to pray. Lord God, we thank you that you have chosen us to be your children of promise. Thank you that through Jesus Christ and faith in him, you have set us free. Thank you that our birth has been supernatural into your family. Thank you for the many promises you give us in your word. Help us to learn them, to seek them out, and to believe them. Thank you that you have promised to be with us and to guide us. And we thank you that already we're part of that heavenly Jerusalem, your kingdom here on earth. Help us to show your love in us and through us in our world, this week, to the glory of your name. Amen.